Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is Monday, June 21st. Well, just ahead, a multi-billion dollar takeout in the farming tech business. Could farming robots be on the way? Plus, a biotech company digging in literally the most disgusting place imaginable to find new cancer drugs. And we'll look at the global shortage for raw materials with our guests, Starbolt Carrier's president, Hamish Norton. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you're listening to this show every day like so many of our listeners They tell us it's their regular source for all the business news they need to know. Get it every day, but subscribe. Hit the follow button on your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down, where we explain the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Joining me, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster, Isaac, hope you had a great Father's Day. Dada. I did. Happy Father Happy Father's Day to you. Yes, I am Dada in our in our little uh, household. Uh, great stuff. Um uh so uh, uh it was just like the day. title of my book, by the way. This is my chance to plug my book, right? Please Daddy do. and Dada. <laughs> Available book. wherever books are sold. Daddy and Dada. For children. Um and all of us. That's right. We love being parents. That's right. Tell that's me the right. three most important business developments in the world of business today, besides your fantastic book featured on Good Morning America, I might add. That is true. I was very pleased with that um, and grateful. All right, Corey, let's get to it. Because if you've been listening to our podcast, you saw this story coming. Some of the top executives at struggling electric car startup Lordstown Motors sold chunks of stock before reporting results. Now, this is according to reg- regulatory filings. In total, five top executives at Lordstown, including the company's president and its former CFO, sold more than $8 million in stock over three days in early February. Now, you may remember on June 14th, the company said a special committee formed by Lordstown Motors Board had looked into the executive stock sales and they concluded that they were made, quote, they were made for reasons unrelated to the performance of the company, end quote. Now, again, you may remember earlier this month, Lordstown Motors stunned investors amending its first annual statement to include a warning that it lacked the funds to begin production and might not be able to continue as a go continue as a going concern. Lordstown has also admitted that some of its statements about pre-orders were inaccurate. So we played the sound of the CEO saying that they had money to make some vehicles, and then we played the sound of the yep. CEO saying we don't have money to make some vehicles. And I'm paraphrasing; there's no <laughs> nuance around that. But what the CEO yeah. wasn't telling us is that there, uh, he was selling stock, as were other executives there. Yeah. Um, there's lots of reasons to sell stock. There's only one reason to buy it, but it's worth noting that a lot of these SPAC uh, arrangements have allowed insiders to get out of a lot of shares before the company's long-term promises uh, come to fruition. And it's worth knowing when you look at these SPAC companies, you want to understand how much can be sold and how soon, because it's different from deal to deal. That's right. Now, the next story we're watching, Corey, President Biden meeting Monday afternoon with financial regulators, including Fed Chief Jerome Powell, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, to discuss issues such as climate change and inclusion. Now, behind the scenes, a bipartisan group of senators is waiting to hear from the president about his infrastructure proposal. 
Now, today's meeting marks Biden's first face-to-face encounter with many of the leading federal regulators of the banking industry and financial markets, and that includes Powell. And Corey, I know that you're in D.C. right now as we... That's right. And uh, Corey, I know that you're in D.C. right now for this meeting. Yeah, I was... I I cannot confirm nor deny why I was outside the White House today. Uh I can just... It might have just been driving my daughter by... But in any case, um, I, I, I did not actually go into the White House to meet with the president today, although some, uh, it is interesting to me that this is the first time Jay Powell and Gary Gensler from the SEC and the head of the CFTC mm-hmm. and, and Janet Yellen and President Biden have all been in the same room at the same time. Those people, of course, are so central to our world and the world of business, but not so central, obviously, to the world of President Biden. Yeah, I found that surprising too. I thought they would have met, you know, the first couple weeks of Biden's presidency. But I'm also happy to hear that, you know, climate change and inclusion are on the docket. Um, what a a great way to move move this ship forward. Now, finally, the third most important business story of the day, Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies continue to sell off. Now, this is China's central bank order the country's largest banks and payment processors to take a more active role in curbing cryptocurrency trading and related activities. Beijing has just been intensifying its crackdown on unregulated virtual currencies. And today, Bitcoin fell to a two-week low. We'll see if that means anything in the long term or if the... It it is interesting because this is a time when some of the Bitcoin mining might be uh, shifting to places to follow the low power uh, that follows the rains there. Um, and, and resulting hydroelectric um, uh, energy creation, which allows for very cheap Bitcoin mining in China, cheaper than anywhere else in the world. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let us start with Series Therapeutics. Series Therapeutics trades under MCRB. Shares rose over 3% today, and they've gained 363% over the past 12 months. What is new with Series? Do you think I say every company we've done in this show, almost every episode? No, this is a really interesting company, but this is legitimately a really interesting company. Um, yeah, that would be a great drinking fun- game. Drink. Every time Corey says it's an interesting company, <laughs> I find these companies all interesting. This one, all right, tell me this isn't interesting. These guys are finding drug therapies developing uh, developed from the human microbiome, right? So the stuff from our well, body okay. that's composed of bacteria, um, archaea, viruses, microbes that are inside or on our bodies, in our gut in particular. And these microbes have tremendous potential to impact our physiology. Everything in all kinds of health and in disease, they contribute to your metabolic functions, protect against pathogens, educate the immune system. I mean, there's a lot going on there. This company, Series Therapeutics, is also notably a component of Arc Genomic Revolution ETF, uh, the much beleaguered, uh, controversial money manager, Kathy Woods, uh, uh, genomics ETF. But this isn't about the stock pick. This is about shit. Can I say that? Ah, yeah, I guess you can. It's a podcast. You can say that word. Am I supposed to say poop? I'm not going to say poop. I'm a grown man. Feces? <laughs> Whatever. This is a novel company. Series bases its drug discovery techniques on shit. They search for living organisms, functioning human microbiomes that can be extracted from shit and used to develop drugs that can quickly work on the human body because it comes from organisms that would come from living humans. This company has no revenues net yet to speak of. Um, uh, lots of targets for their therapies, including 
hard to target and hard to tolerate cancer therapies that they think might be more tolerable because the body already has some of these microbes in it. Um, today, they had a meeting to discuss what they're doing and a couple of new potential treatments for ulcerative colitis. And um, FMT, yes, fecal material transplant, placing the shit, or at least the microbes from the shit, from a healthy person into the colon of someone who has ulcerative colitis. Um, here is Stephen Hanauer. He's a doctor with uh, Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. And he spoke today at the Serious Therapeutics event. And he was asked, can this fecal therapeutic transplant actually work? So my personal interpretation is that, number one, there is a signal um, that transplants can be helpful. But number two, there's going to be some specificity because many of the successes of the transplant relate to specific donors who have um, uh, donated their uh, uh, microbiome, whereas other donors have not been as effective. So I think that the mechanistic aspects of the trials that series are, gonna, are doing is going to help clarify, uh, again, some of the a potential targeting of microbiota in individual patients. But I think that it is clearly a signal that there may be, be that there is going to be benefit in individuals. I think part of the other signal is that it looks like some form of maintenance therapy with transplants is going to be more effective than a single uh, transplantation. Now, that's good news if you're an investor in the company, if this comes to fruition. The notion that you would need multiple treatments, not just one, that means multiple revenue events for the company. But this is way down the line if it ever gets to work. Um, but yes, this is mining in places. Never thought anyone should be mining. Well, you can learn a lot from shit, can't you, Corey? Corey, Everybody what is your next drill down? I'm guessing that guess was one do. of the basis of your, of your children's book. That classic children's <laughs> book, Everybody Poops. Well, right now we are, speaking of poop, we're trying to potty train my two-year-old and it's just not going well. And, but that's, an, uh, that's a different story. That's a different podcast. Those Corey. Speaking of the next drill down. Uh, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Lydol. Lidol, uh, LDL, shares rose 85% today. What is going on with Lidol? You're about to tell us. And they've also gained 367% in a year. All right, tell me about Lidol. What's going on? So the company got bought out today, Merger Monday, right? So, you know, a bunch of right. investment, young investment bankers had their summer weekend on the Hamptons ruined because they were called into the office to work <laughs> all, all weekend on this deal. A Buffalo, New York private company called uh, Unifrex, is going to buy Lidol for $1.3 billion, nearly twice the valuation that it had on Friday when all those young bankers got that call that their, bank, their weekend was ruined. Um, this is an interesting company, Lidol. Lidol, uh, based in, in Connecticut, outside of Hartford, Connecticut, um, uh, they make these engineered materials and specialty filtration solutions. Now think filters, right? Filters ought to be a pretty good business coming out of a global pandemic caused by an airborne virus. But there's a mm -hmm. lot more to this company. And they've been hinting at it in recent conference calls and investor presentations because lightweight fiber-based products aren't limited to filters. They're good for the manufacturing of parts that are unique to electric vehicles. Listen to the last conference call where we had CEO Sarah Greenstein. 
when you look at the transition from internal combustion engines to hybrid vehicles to electric vehicles, Lytle is very well positioned to support our global OEMs through that transition. Um, and, and we believe that for Lytle, that that transition will be a tailwind for us because of the engineering challenges that exist and the nature of the products that we make and the materials expertise that we have coming to bear as they work to solve those problems. And, I mean, acoustical abatement is but one, but really when you think about the, the protections required in an in a electric vehicle different than an internal combustion engine and the need for ever-increasing light weighting, um, you know, fibers-based products are a wonderful solution to those. And, and the combination of our know-how in that space combined with the material that kind of experience that, that can go into the manufacturing of those parts, um, we, we believe and are seeing uh, that there being some real strengths there. So that's interesting. She's, she's saying they're already seeing it. And, uh, that's great. You know, in an acquisition like this, uh, the, you know, obviously the acquirer got a good look under their hood. Sorry, bad pun. But, you know. It's an appropriate pun. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Raven Industries. Raven Industries that trades under RAVN shares rose 49% today and they're higher by, let's say, 172% for a year. What's going on with Raven? Another takeout, another merger Monday, um, another cool tech company, cooler than filters. These guys, I mean, if this company was in Silicon Valley, it probably would have had a 10x valuation going into this thing, but it's in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, so who cares? Well, somebody cared. Today, the company was bought off for $2.8 billion by CNH Industrial. It's about 54 times pre-pandemic earnings by my count, which is a big number, but this is really, really cool farm gear. Uh, These guys at Raven design and make precision agriculture products and information management tools that let farmers um, get more crops out of the ground. So think of applications uh, that control tractors and combines and the like, right? GPS guidance steering systems, field computers, as well as computers that are not in the field, automatic boom controls uh, for spraying, um, machine automation, injection systems. They also have an aerospace business making high altitude stratospheric platforms and radar systems. So how does this all come together at Raven? Think to the future, Isaac, autonomous driving tractors. Yeah, controlled by satellites, right? Um, it, this could be some really interesting stuff and these guys see it coming. Yeah. They're going to pair software and hardware and they're going to do it now uh, to improve the precision farming stuff that's already in the field. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Farming pun. <laughs> it's already in the field. Raven's already <laughs> selling this stuff. CNH guys looked at this and said, um, uh, you know, we this can take us to the next level. This can uh, accelerate our digital transformation. And soon they're going to be looking not at precision farming, but autonomous farming solutions. And they think they're going to see the fruits of that labor. I did it again. <laughs> they're going to see the fruits of that labor in 2024, 2025. Here is CEO Scott Wine 
talking about uh, what he was actually seeing out there from customers and how he thinks this is really going to accelerate to uh, autonomous farming solutions. When you provide these integrated digital precision solutions, they're higher margin, higher revenue opportunities um, that we expect to progress. That's easier and faster with precision because that's what we both know a little bit. But autonomy is really coming fast. And, you know, because they've got stuff deployed in the field, stuff, how about that for a technical term? Um, You know, they have equipment in the field deployed now that they're learning from and they're using. I mean, I've actually seen it in use myself. And so understand uh, the benefit it can provide. And, And think about it. Um, as I've been out talking to farmers, the labor shortage is real and probably not going to be um, solved anytime soon. So when you can bring autonomous solutions that decrease the need for labor, which will be one of the, the targets that we provide, that will be a couple years out. So the, the reason for the revenue synergies really taking place in 2025, 2026 is our ability to integrate that capability uh, over time. But it, it really is that order, it's seamless integration of precision and then seamless integration of autonomy that we expect to drive the, the growth for uh, Raven within our business. He said drive the growth. I'm not the only punster around here. All you right, are let's the drill chief down punster, here. <laughs> okay, perhaps. Hey, let's drill down and on a company that's really interesting right now in this global environment of a shortage of uh, well, as, as Mr. Wine said, stuff. We're going to drill down on Starbolt Carriers with its president, Hamish Norton. You don't want to miss this one. It really is one of my favorite favorite interviews we've done so far. Now, the drill down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the drill down. We're joined right now by Hamish Norton, the CEO of Starbulk. Uh, Hamish, what is Starbulk uh, and, and what, what is the business you guys are in? So St- Starbulk is the largest U.S. listed dry bulk shipping company. Um, and the business we're in is carrying dry bulk commodities. So uh, that's not containers. That's not oil products that are carried in tankers. Dry bulk ships have large uh, holds. Um, which carry anything you can throw in a hole. So uh, we carry iron ore, we carry coal, we carry grains, we carry other uh, mineral ores, um, and uh, our ships range in size from 52,000 tons of cargo up to 209,000 tons of cargo. Uh, in somewhere between five and nine separate holds. So, um, you know, our our 209,000 ton ships have nine holds that would carry a little bit more than 20,000 tons of cargo per hold. Um, I have the great joy, I've had the great joy for most of the last decade of having an office 
right out in the San Francisco Bay. I worked for many years at Bloomberg, and even now I record this show from the Ferry Building in San Francisco. And so I get to look out of the bay and at eye level see these wonderful, massive ships go by. And then with the help of a website called Boating SF, I can actually see what the ship is, where its last uh, uh, stop was, possibly what kind of ship is, and try to derive what it carries. It's it's a fascinating uh, excursion of the mind. Um, but it is fascinating to me that, that there are so many of these ships that are specialized to carry um, just massive quantities of, of as, as you suggest, kind of raw materials to be processed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 of course, shipping is the most efficient way to do that, right? A lot of those things cross a, a great distance, and, and um, that's the principal way these things move around. Yeah, well, in fact, shipping is is – Certainly, the the single most energent way to carry um, cargo, um, and for dry bulk commodities, it's it's actually the only way to carry cargo um, between two points that are not connected by land. Um, you know, if 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 you've got the choice of moving dry cargo by uh, ship or by train or by truck. Um, the ship is the most efficient. Uh, the rail connection is the second most efficient. The truck is the third most efficient. But most of dry bulk commodities move on the ocean. So uh, explain to me then. Uh, so I, I get the the notions of of how that works. I get the notions of that that generally of rising GDP levels uh, are good for for your business and falling GDP levels are not. Right, recession's bad. Yeah. Uh, growth is good, uh, but talk to me really about who's paying whom in this industry, and and how does the how does the business work? Okay, so um, uh, we collect our revenue in two different ways. Um, our smaller ships, the the fifty two thousand ton ships, up to about ninety thousand ton ships, we tend to time charter. And uh, time charter involves either a mining company or a trader or even somebody who has a complicated uh, web of uh, transportation contracts will try to book our ship for a period of time. And since the charterer can tell us where to go and how fast to go and what to do, charterer pays for fuel. The charterer pays for canal fees, port charges, and takes the risk of weather delays and so on. And we just get paid a certain amount per day. Which is what you guys call the the charter rate, right? The charter rate, exactly. But then there's another more complex way to to operate, and we operate our larger ships, our so-called Cape Size and Newcastle Max ships, which are about 160,000 tons up to 209,000 tons in the voyage charter business. And there, basically, we would work with, let's say, a mining company or a a grain uh, trader, and we would agree to carry uh, cargo from point A to point B for a certain price per ton. We pay for the fuel, we pay canal fees, we pay port charges, and weather delays are for our own risk. And that's a more people-intensive business, but it it can pay better. So in those in those cases, are those the only ones where, say, the ship, uh, the captain and the crew, and so on, 
either work for you on a contract basis, but they're working for you. You're not turning the turning the keys over to somebody else and saying, "Here's your pay me the well, charter rate. It's your boat." Well, even with a time charter, the captain and the crew are our employees. Uh, Got it. Uh, and, and, so, these, so, and, and by, yeah, by yeah. the way, speaking speaking of employees, I should just clarify that I'm the president of Starbuck, but we actually do have a, a Petros Papas, who's the CEO. I appreciate that. Um, and yeah. so uh, as as this company, well, you guys are based in Greece as so many. Why are so many shipping companies based in Greece? You know, it, it's um, Greece is a great place to run a shipping company. Um, in in, for example, in New York, where you are, um, where where I'm Usually. based and uh, indeed, um, if you advertise for a position at a shipping company, you're not going to get that many applicants. There are not too many people who co- go to college in New York who say, when I graduate from college, <laughs> I want to go into shipping. Um, and and you don't necessarily get the best and the brightest. I, I graduated from NYU, and I am neither the best or the brightest, nor did I plan on going shipping. So uh, to your point, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. But in Greece, there is a, a culture of shipping. Greece has been in shipping for millennia. You know, it's, it's pretty difficult to grow crops in Greece. So Greece had to generate its living through trade. So shipping is is something that every Greek knows about, thinks about, and people graduating from university in Greece, they want to go into shipping, and we get great people. So it, it's frankly, it's not because the cargoes come from Greece or the cargoes arrive in Greece. Our ships call in Greece very seldom, but we have a great group of people to draw from. So you were saying there's there's a couple of ways to grow your business. One, of course, is shipping more stuff. Yeah, not just shipping more stuff, actually. Um, uh, it, it, it's generating more revenue per ship. And, you know, basically the ships are always occupied, more or less. Um, but um, if, if you have, you know, one too many ships in the world, um, that pushes the revenue per day down. You know, um, in 2016, in the first quarter of 2016, we had some ships generating $800 a day of revenue, some of our big ships, our Cape mm-hmm. sizes. In uh, 2008, Cape sizes were during some periods in 2008, generating $250,000 a day. So that's something like a 300 to one ratio um, yeah. from peak to trough. So <laughs> the best way to grow revenue in a shipping company is to get high charter rates for each ship. But you can't always do that. So. Um, the other way to grow the shipping company is to have more ships, and we try to do both. Um, we have 128 ships in Starbulk, and that's that's considered to be a large number of ships for a shipping company, and that allows us to get our operating cost per ship per day 
down to a very low level because basically when we have a supplier, we can promise the supplier if they give us a good deal that the supplier will get to supply 128 ships. Um, we get our overheads down for a sure day because sure. of course- Economies of scale. You, economies of scale, exactly. So we, we get our costs down uh, and you know we get a little more revenue per ship with with 128 ships because again we have better market knowledge as a result of having ships call all over the world more frequently. Now you've also seen a big decline in the industry, which might suggest that your competition has uh, disappeared. I mean those ships are still out there somewhere, but there hasn't been a lot of growth in terms of new ships being built. And there's also been, a, as I mentioned, a, an industry that's been in decline over a long period of time. Well, you you have an industry that I don't. It's not quite right to say it's been in decline, but let's just say that it's it's had a bad decade. Um, I, I I wish that the size of the fleet had declined while the revenues were depressed for basically right. the last decade. But unfortunately, the fleet kept growing, um, and when you have more ships chasing you know, a, an less amount dollars. of cargo. Right, right. Exactly. You get, you get less dollars. It's supply and demand. Um, but what's happened recently is that the ore book for new dry bulk ships has been shrinking and shrinking and shrink, shrinking as a percentage of the fleet. And the demand for dry bulk movements has been growing every year. And it's grown quite substantially in 2021. Um, so that now we've got very, very much higher revenues per ship. And yet people are not ordering new dry bulk ships. And that's now our, a combination. Our environment, I was going to say, well, you, well, tell me why. I mean, is, is part of that the environmental concerns about just how much uh, pollution these ships are putting off? Uh, well, it, it's environmental concerns, but, you know, th there are a number of factors. Environmental concerns are probably the, the the most recent factor. But uh, f first of all, if you've been in dry bulk for the last 10 years, as I have been, um, it's very traumatizing. <laughs> um, any any executive who's who's had to deal with the conditions over the past 10 years wants to see solid proof that ordering a new ship is a good thing to do. Um, but uh, the other issue is what kind of ship are you going to order? The International Maritime Organization of the United Nations has promulgated rules about carbon efficiency. And if we were to order a new ship, it would seem pretty stupid to order a ship that just burns fuel oil because that ship is, is not you know, new technology. It's not zero carbon. It's it's um, it's might be obsolete relatively early in its life. So what are the choices? Well, you can order a ship that burns fuel oil and liquefied natural gas, but um. liquefied natural gas may not solve the problem. Both the World Bank and uh, the group of OECD nations plus Norway have uh, submitted papers to the International Maritime Organization, basically pleading with 
with people not to order LNG or liquefied natural gas fueled ships because LNG is a fossil fuel. It doesn't save that much carbon. And methane itself is a greenhouse gas and a very potent one. So uh, their point of view was that investing money in LNG powered ships might delay the advent of zero carbon ships. But you can't order a zero carbon ship yet, maybe in two or three years. So people in people in my position are very puzzled about what kind of ship they should order. And as a result, people are not ordering the the. Yeah, which is good for you, because it means essentially the capacity in the dry bulk fleet just isn't going to increase as much as it has in even in recent years. Um, Explain to me what your scrubber technology is. So uh, of our 128 ships, I, I think it's 120 have so-called uh, exhaust gas cleaning systems, which are referred to as scrubbers. And um, what, the, what the scrubber does is it permits us to burn less expensive high sulfur fuel oil as opposed to more expensive low sulfur fuel oil. Um, we spent about $230 million on these exhaust gas scrubbers. And um, they are at today's price difference between low sulfur and high sulfur fuel, they're generating about $100 million of- Interesting. Uh, of and again, that fuel is a lot cheaper uh, for those unfamiliar with the refining process of oil. The, the basic is is the, the, the there's the higher distillates and the lower distillates and the higher distillates are things like gasoline which require a lot of um, essentially curation at a refinery but the yeah. junk that comes out of the oil the high sulfur uh, low sulfur what do they call high sulfur uh, waxy residue uh, are those are those are the things that are sort of easier to produce from that most any refinery uh, even without a reformer can create and what what's yeah. the price differential there in terms of what percentage Whoa. cheaper is that. Uh, well, okay. So at the beginning of 2020, the price difference was $350 a ton. And we burn between 800,000 and a million a year. So wow. that would have been over $300 million a year. In 2020, when the pandemic hit and demand for jet fuel plummeted, the price difference went from $350 a ton to $40 a ton. Wow. So Price the <laughs> fact that okay, Jeff Fuel also is a lower distillate. Um, uh, lower lower sulfur product. Right. That's, that's uh, so. really interesting. So so yeah. you here yeah. you have a cleaner technology and a, that ends up in being a cheaper fuel. Yeah. So uh, but now the price difference has risen to about one hundred twenty dollars a ton. And so our scrubbers are, you know, it looks like about a two year payback. At the at current prices of low sulfur versus high sulfur fuel, uh, a, a two-year payback, but a but a maybe a permanent payback or a long-term payback for our ecology. Yes, although I, I, the truth is, there's not much difference to the to the. If we didn't have scrubbers, we would have to use low sulfur fuel. There's not that much difference, frankly, between burning low sulfur fuel without a scrubber and high sulfur fuel with a scrubber. Um, 
there's a little less carbon emission over the life cycle by using the scrubber yeah. because it takes a fair amount of energy to refine the the high sulfur fuel into low sulfur fuel but uh, you know it's they're more or less equivalent so I guess to summarize when we want to look at the growth for your company going forward what we see is maybe a lower cost standpoint than other competitors uh, you've got less competition coming online big time because capacity in the dry bulk fleet is not increasing much as it has been. And then on top of that, you've got a rising economy across the world. So your shipments of coal and iron ore and the other things that you ship, but I think it's mainly those two. Um, when when all uh, all ships rise with a high tide, right? Yeah. No, look, we're very optimistic for the next few years because uh, basically we don't see orders coming into the order book of new buildings. And, you know, if, if you order a new ship, it takes two years for it to be delivered. And if you don't get orders in the next two years, it's, you know, it's basically four years. Exactly. So you can see the competition from a long distance. Well, uh, Hamish Norton, we really appreciate your time. Hamish Norton is the president of Starbulk and we uh, appreciate time you've given us with this really interesting company. Like I said, my great joy is looking out the window and staring at the ships all day. Sometimes I spend a little time writing a podcast, um, but it's great stuff. All right, well, up next, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We talked about the capacity being added to the dry bulk fleet in 2019. 4.1% capacity was the increase in capacity in 2019. So what's it expected to be for, for 2022? How much Norton told it was going to be less where does it go from 4.1 percent we'll give you that number the drill down bite after this the drill down is brought to you by era a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically era's ai powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter that's era aiera.com and you can listen to the drill down on any of your favorite podcast platforms we hope you listen every day like so many of our listeners do and you can listen to us. Just hit subscribe on any of your favorite podcast platforms to get each episode of The Drill Down. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. Okay, back with The Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We told you that there was a 4.1% increase in dry bulk fleet capacity in 2019. Well, according to Refinitiv, they did an analysis expecting only a 0.8% increase in the dry bulk fleet. So if it's that or even something a little bit higher, it still suggests things, uh, great growth potential, Isaac, for Starbulk. What an interesting conversation, huh? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. We don't talk about the shipping lanes enough, but it's the backbone of the economy in a lot of ways. Yeah, and and you know, you living in Los Angeles, the port of Los Angeles, and uh, me looking out of the port of port of Oakland and San Francisco, we see so much uh, global traffic there, and we really get to see kind of how the world's uh, goods and uh, move uh, around this planet. Uh, fascinating business indeed. Right, well, thank you for listening to the Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.